Hey guys, welcome back. Appreciate your patience and uh, waiting on an episode of the Sample Hour. I'm excited to bring you guys this episode. I posted a while ago on Patreon. I was trying there when I had more time to to get some exclusive content out there. So I had this episode and another one out, which I'll probably release on here this week. Uh, I'm just saying probably because. Quite honestly, guys, I'm record. I'm posting this podcast today because it's raining. Um, when you farm full time, it's quite a bit different. I mean, uh, as you guys know, been kind of uh, taking a uh, step back. I still have episodes to post. It's just I'm not posting them as frequently. I mean, I'm still trying to get you guys one episode a week. Like to do two, but uh, top priority is me paying my bills, guys. I hope you appreciate that, and I think that's kind of why you guys listen. Because this is, uh, I just try to record what I'm doing in my life. So, some updates. Um, things are going well. Just finished the structure yesterday. So, we're going to start building our washing and drying areas. I am excited about that. Um, I got packaging I like for microgreens. So, I'm going to start, I'm going to bring some samples into the grocery stores next week and figure out what they need for me to sell and then i'm going to be working with nathan frazier on some labels so i'm excited about that um i've been growing the business so um just like i planned with scott and talked about with scott on last you know the episode i released on sunday so um yeah been hustling guys so i appreciate everyone listening and uh you know um yeah, just everyone's support, man. It's it's really cool. It's always cool whenever you guys write me. Um, but anyways, with that being said, let's get into the affiliates before we get this episode going. Oh, yeah. So well, let's tell about this guest. So my guest today is Alexander Eakins. So Alexander, I actually met on um, the Profitable Urban Farming group. So he is actually another member of the course. And Alexander, what a cool guy. Um, I'm pretty impressed with him. Uh, that guy you'll hear in the podcast, I mean, just a different perspective. So it made me think about the way I've been doing things quite a bit differently. Um, so super stoked about this episode. Uh, it's a little bit longer one. Uh, but uh, yeah, we talk a lot about what he does and kind of his history and business and how he got into farming and then how he started his co-op. And, you know, I'd love to have a co-op uh, like what he has here and I'd like to do something with the GSD guys. So got something in the works, um, in my brain, but first, you know, phase one, I got to actually start making money for my farm. Um, but anyways, so check him out. He is, we, we put out his Instagram info at the end of the episode. Um, but yeah, let's get in the affiliate. So nature's image farm, nothing is for sale, but let's shout him out because Greg Burns is a good friend of mine. And uh, hopefully, we'll be bringing you guys another buzzcast here soon. Uh, and so, yeah, so check out naturesimagefarm.com. I will let you guys know when he has more stuff for sale, but he has officially sold out of everything. Uh, check out Grant Schultz's course for growing pawpaws at versaland.tv. Uh, it's pretty good, pretty good course for pawpaws. And I don't know why I told you guys that because I haven't even done it. But I know Grant's work. I mean, anything Grant does, he does it. He doesn't do it half-assed. So, and finally, if you guys are interested in becoming profitable farmers, uh, you know I met Alexander 
via the course and I wouldn't have been able to come together with him and, and had this awesome conversation with him. I'm going to be bringing him on again, probably after the season. We wanted to do another one soon, but man, guys, it's just when, it, when this season hits, I always forget how busy it is. Probably because I didn't really <laughs> work as hard last year as I am this year. Um, so if you guys want to contribute to the show, uh, feel free to become a patron. So if you click on the link in the show notes and you can do Patreon, uh, if you want to just make a financial contribution one time and not become a monthly patron, um, there's a link for PayPal as well. And if you guys are interested in reading or getting a free audiobook and starting up an Audible account, uh, go to audibletrial.com forward slash sample hour. And want you guys to know that I am reading Sapiens. So that's a great book. I've been incredibly fascinated by it. Uh, Scott Hebert recommended it to me, so I, I checked it out and um, about midway through the book. So definitely a super cool book. Check out Sapiens. So with that being said, guys, I hope you enjoy the show. This is uh, long overdue. We've only I've only tried scheduling with you a bunch of times, and then scheduled the wrong scheduled a day, then thought it was a different day. Then thankfully, I think you forgot too, because I never heard anything from you. Because one time I was like, absolutely, and I was like, oh, Friday at this time, and then I then I looked and I was like, hey, and then Friday passes and it's Sunday, and I'm like, we still on for today? And I'm like, oh shit, dude, I totally miss it. But I was like, well, he would have messaged me. And so I I'm think, not worried about. It. Yeah, well, long good time. The funny thing was the the first time we I had, I had you scheduled, you had to take a jackhammer in your basement. And, and I oh was well, yeah. So it's definitely been wet this season. Yeah. And at this little house here, well, this little house my great grandfather built. That's awesome. And you know, I don't think that he had any intention of having four generations be here when he built it. Um, That's bad ass, though, that you live in a house that your family's been in for four generations, I must say. Yeah. Um, I mean, at this point in time, you know, it needs quite a lot of care. Um, and so, you know, just dealing with some of those issues over the past three years since I moved back here to both take care of the house and my dad and the property here and, and start a farm, um, start the farm back. You know, my great grandfather originally had horses and cattle here. Um, and then over subsequent years, it kind of just fell into a bit of disrepair. Yeah. And, you know, just kind of only had the field cut for hay every now and again. But, uh, yeah, this year has been a wet year. Um, Traditionally speaking, every, say, five or ten years, there would be a pond out in the field. But this year, the pond basically came up to the house. Um, I would say I've got, like, a solid 20-acre lake um, that isn't normally here. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> so, well, let's so, – so, first off, 
Um, let's let's get you to tell your story. So, Alexander Ekins, and you know, Ekins. For, Ekins. Ekins. Okay, for the longest yeah. time, I would read it Elkins, and then when I when sure. I was writing your email, I was like, "There's no L there," and I was like, "Maybe it's you, Ekins." And then you're like, "You oh. wouldn't be the first one to put in the sneaky L." Yeah, those uh, those Elkins, fuck no. them, by the way, because they, they mess up your your stuff. I'm just teasing. So, so we're in uh, yeah, Alexander Eakins. Yeah, we're in Curtis in Stone's Spokane, course Washington. together. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. out of Spokane, Washington. Um, yeah, I mean, I know I joined the course a couple years ago, but I didn't really start farming till last year, and I was doing it part time. But you know, I just remember you were you were always killing it. And it's always like you'd always post what you were selling, and and I'm like, I gotta talk to that yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. I gotta talk to that guy. And uh, but so so you know, what's what's your story? Because right now, one thing you you post in the group what everyone's goals were for the year, and I posted mine, and I and you would go, hey dude, I would love to come on your show and talk about what I have going on. I have this humongous co-op. We do a bunch of business, and I was like, oh hell yeah, dude, I'd I'd love to do that because like I'm in the I mean, basically, man, like where I'm at, which I, I don't know if you, I think you listen, like from, from what you've told me, you listen to the show and yeah, I'm, I'm familiar. I'm yeah, familiar. Yeah. And I don't expect you to listen to every episode. I, I wouldn't, I mean, it's just like, it's one of those things where it's like, if you listen, cool. But if not, like, I still want to be your friend. Cause I like what you're doing, but like, uh, it's always sure. funny. Some people say, Oh, sorry. I don't listen to every episode. I'm like, I wouldn't expect you to. It's not a big deal. But, uh, you know, you're, you're familiar with my goals of wanting to do this aggregator, but the more and more I'm looking at things, I think aggregating slash co-op, um, basically incorporating other farmers for me to make money, I think is is my goal along with farming myself. Like I, um, Scott and I just kind of went over in the last podcast we did that, uh, you know, I was I was so burned out last year, man. And, and just, and then this year it's like, dude, you've already done so much work. Stop being a pussy and just, you know, suck it up and get to work. Like, I think like, right. I, and I think in your first year, man, it's easy to come to that. Maybe far, I'm not a farmer. And it's like, you know, like, yeah, I, I prefer sales, but at the same time, like, I think when I take action, something I notice, whatever I do, people pay attention to. So it's like I, I should keep farming for that reason because I am on such a small plot and I think it uh, it's good for the neighborhood. It's it's like uh, it's good for people to to get interested. But enough about me, Alexander. Um, I'm just trying to tie it in as to why. But I want to hear sure, sure. how you well, got so, started because I know like the, I know you do a lot of business, but it's like I don't know your exact. Right. I don't know I don't know your story. So keep going. Sorry. Right. So well, I was I was born here in Spokane. I was born on this farm that I'm now operating. But I didn't stay here. I moved to Bellingham to go to college. I went to the uh, Western Washington University there. I studied, you know, liberal arts like a lot of people of our day. Um, So, you know, I've got the, I studied political, political science and philosophy and economics. Nice. Um, So, you know, I mean, it wasn't a, a bad program. I, I learned to think critically. I often joke like that I had to go to school to know that I didn't need to. Yeah. Um, and, and it also just set the tone to try and seek out, say, what I would just call the truth, even just 
if that's just the truth for yourself. Um, but in my study of politics and in my study of philosophy and economics, I could see that there was a real problem with what the, the way of doing business is in, in this day and age, meaning that we're not making it any easier for ourselves. Um, we've got systems of waste. We have systems that don't serve us. And so through all of those politics, in the end, it kind of boiled down to what can you do for yourself and what can you do for your family and then what can you do for your neighborhood rather than trying to contend with, say, global politics or what's happening halfway around the world or you know any of that type of thing. So it's kind of a, a sphere of, of influence versus sphere of concern. And as that boiled down, it came closer and closer to food. Um, all of the complex systems of the world are based off of the backbone of food, whether we like to really admit it or not. And in the end, having the ability and the knowledge and the drive to produce for yourself is probably just like a, a good starting point um, philosophically and politically and I mean, spiritually even. Um, so, you know, I, I tend hard to the anarchist side of things. Um, and, you know, it also lends itself to those types of perspectives as well. So coming out of, of that type of, say, study and um, environment, um, following a path into food is just where I went. Initially speaking, it was operating um, a small breakfast cafe and then a, a, a gastropub and trying to work within, say, the food system as it presented itself, um, which is, you know, ghastly. It's just full of crap and uh, the, the price of it um, forces people who create value into a hard place. Um, but then even diving further out of Bellingham, I helped create Scratch and Peck Seeds, which was uh, the first certified organic verified non-GMO chicken feed in North America. Um, we sort of were on the, the ground base of what has become the resurgence of quality chicken food and, say, the county mill um, being brought back across America. I mean, since, say, 2006, seven when that project first started until now, you know, you've seen just more and more and more uh, demand for those types of products. We were sourcing all within Washington state, um, all the green, all the corn. The only thing that didn't come from Washington was essentially the oyster shell that we use in there for a calcium and grit. But, so you started a food um, company or you, you worked at one? Yeah. 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 Scratch and Peck Feeds out of Bellingham, Washington. Okay, so, so, so did you start the restaurants too, or did you work at them? Like, have you just been this serial yeah, entrepreneur all, just kicking yeah, ass just this whole time? Yeah, part, just partners in all of these businesses. Um, Damn, dude. I didn't realize I, I you're just, such a baller. Look at you. Ball. Oh, no, no, no. No, no. <laughs> I'm just it's teasing. More, I respect it. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's more or less like um, that I always found myself surrounded by people who were doers, who were willing to take the risk to try and have their own employment and to employ other people 
you know, based upon their own values and based upon their own goals and, you know, really working with people on individual levels um, to try and create something bigger than themselves. So, you know, it's like, uh, I, I think people get maybe caught up a little bit in, in political terms, or maybe they can become misguided in, in their usage. Um, but I see a lot of the things that I've done as, as sort of the true anarchist tendency as, as a collective. Yeah. So you you thought instead of getting in a street and complaining about what I didn't like, I'm going to, I'm going to basically, my political statement is going to be via through business and I'm going to have businesses that represent the things that I believe. Yes. And, and that I'm going to do it with people who are equally standing there in front of me uncoerced saying, that's exactly what I want to fucking do too. And together we're going to be able to do this, which gives, gives each of us our own freedom that we work for ourselves. And, you know, like you can't really do it all by yourself. You just just can't like you need other people. And it it doesn't mean that I got to own you or that you got to own me. And it doesn't mean that we got to do it forever. It just means that as long as we want to do it, then we'll do it. And that's that. Right. And so I, I see that as like that, that true outcome of an anarchist meeting other anarchists. Yeah. You know, we all don't just need to be like our own islands. Like, we need to do shit together because it benefits us and we're not going to, you know, fuck each other over or whatever in the process, right? Yeah, I think it's... Because we have the uh, same values. Isn't Stephen Covey, I think he wrote about it in highly, Seven Habits of Highly effect, Effective People, Interdependence, isn't that one of the highly effective... Right. Skill, like one of the seven right. habits? And I, I agree, yeah, right. like, the goal is not to be independent, it's to be interdependent. I mean, and that comes with community. Right. And I think that, you know, if, if you have a community of doers that can piece together something and make a difference in the form of a business or even just a, just a community where you help each other out, I think, I think that's, I think that's, that's what you're exactly what I agree with you. And that's exactly what you're talking about. And so I just started to see this happen more and more, especially through the mill. I mean, the mill really put it in there because I was then directly purchasing from grain growers in Washington state, organic grain growers in Washington state, and then directly selling to the end consumer, the value added product of combining grains and other inputs, other natural and organic inputs into a specified feed, you know, on proteins, um, and then selling that directly back to the, the consumer. And so I was, I was seeing it from both ends, from both like what the farmer itself, you know, had to go through to deliver their product. And then also what the consumer end was demanding from, you know, like a a well-branded product. So it was kind of both streams. Um, And to really try and, and have all of those individuals being able to achieve what they wanted to achieve. Like that, the farmer who was growing the grain instead of, having that grain just go into the big commodity market and disappear and having have no idea where or how it was used. He knew exactly who was using it and for what. And that really like allowed him to 
have pride in what it was that he was growing it for. And then that end consumer had the ability to look back and say, like, I know exactly what farms this feed that I'm feeding my animals came from. Um, and, and all together, we were able to have this circumstance that just everybody was winning. The farmer was getting a better price because we were buying it direct. And the end consumer was getting a better product because it was organic and it was feeding their animals in a way that they couldn't feed them otherwise. Um, and to me, that's like another example of sort of that collective uh, individuals working together for their positive benefit. And that's in the good um, form, not the people that shit on collectivism. I think it's a it's a word that people like to demonize, but it's not the, it's not collectivism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because I think I'm not it's forcing like, anybody, nobody's forced in. Yeah, and I think that like, it's a different thing. Like I hear I hear people complaining about the dangers of collectivism, which. Yeah, it's definitely a real thing, but I think that, you know, when you find like-minded individuals who who want to want the same things you do or you can help them get the things they want that you know, you guys are all kind of operating in the same spirit or the same uh the same ideals. I think that's and you're and you're being and, and it's in a positive in 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 a business manner. I think man, that's so it's just so rewarding. Oh, it was the best. It was the best. And, and then we were able to work with other, other businesses that were doing equally cool independent things. Like we would contract mill um, wheat for a uh, vodka distillery down in Seattle who made handcrafted vodkas. And so they could have single farm sourced um, wheat. So they could say the name of the farm that the wheat came from. They could say the mill that milled the wheat could say, you know, that this was the process that they used. And so that these bottles of whiskey or vodka coming out of their shop are one of a kind. Nobody else could say those things. Um, and, and those were the types of projects that were just, you know, just awesome to be around. Um, and I was just able to glean all this information off of the pig producers, the chicken producers, and, you know, they had all of their auxiliary products that they produced on their farms as well. And, you know, over in Bellingham, it's, it's a pretty happening scene. The West side, it's as West side of the country as West side gets. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're just South of, of Vancouver, BC, you're North of Seattle, Washington. So you're kind of like smack dab in the middle of, you know, the Pacific Northwest, Portland's just south of there. And so, you guys have basements. You know, I thought all the West Coast didn't have basements. <laughs> I thought, I no, thought we, for we sure. a lot of basements. Yeah, I thought for basements. sure that it was like a, just a Midwestern thing to have basements because like you go to Florida, nobody has basements. You go to California, nobody has basements. Right. You know, it's like, I felt like it was just like an East Coast, Midwestern Great Plains thing, but no, you have basements there. No, I, we we love some basements. Yeah, lots of lots of really good basements up here in Washington. <laughs> um, you know, so it's it, it's like a, the scene was just going on, and, and so you know, I knew in my back pocket. Well, there's the forty acres back in in Spokane, and so up here in Washington, Spokane is is about ten years behind Seattle in terms of what's cool or the kinds of restaurants or the kinds of businesses. So there's a lot it's more just, hipsters uh, in Seattle than Spokane. 
Absolutely. But the, the positive, like the ultimate positive outcomes of say like better restaurants, better downtown development, uh, refurbishment of old buildings, you know, all, all of those types of things, those creep through. And so Spokane is kind of in the middle of a pretty big resurgence. And so I just saw, okay, you know, I'm in a saturated market here in Bellingham as far as becoming a small scale producer that would say sell at a farmer's market. I need to move. <clears throat> I need to, you know, get myself out of these other business adventures and just go all in. So you a small farm. So you sold your shares in those other companies? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, it was just time to go. I had been, you know, kind of living out of Bellingham off and on for, gosh, like you know, ten years. I had kind of bounced around a little bit doing, doing other work. And how far? You know, how but, far uh, is Bellingham from Spokane, like uh, mileage wise? Uh, I'm gonna say you know from Spokane to Seattle, it's like. 400 miles and so in Bellingham, a, 80, 80 miles north of Seattle. Okay. It's like six hours. So six hour drive. Yeah. That's intense. Cause Washington's <laughs> a pretty big landmass compared to Yeah. It's Ohio. a pretty big, it's a pretty big place up here. And there's a, a real difference in climate east to west. So west of the Cascade mountains, it's essentially a rainforest. And then east is the a desert, right? It's a desert. And so I'm kind of up here on what's called the Palisades on the west side of Spokane. And it's this amazing landscape where you have these basalt columns. And then down below all the columns, it's filled in with topsoil over the millennia of the decomposing basalt. And so I have just sort of this basin of, you know, a foot and a half of black chocolate gold uh, is some of the nicest soil that I've, you know, been able to put my hands on without really even having to do anything besides sort of peel back the grass and fescue that was just growing here. You know, it just grows naturally here. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a little different climate. So it's, it's full, full four seasons. You know, you get a real cold winter. My, my frost date is say that, May 15th, May 31st. And I can even get frost in June uh, up here. So it's kind of like a little bit of a climate change and, and from the west side, which is really mild. But uh, it's been really wet this year. But, you know, in the three years that I've farmed here, I've had both the driest year on record and the wettest year on record. So I've gotten to actually see sort of like the far end of what's possible on my farm right off the bat, which is pretty good because it gives you a sense of what you got to do, you know, but uh, that's kind of how like how it came to be. Um, you know, during the time that I was working at the mill, I also spent two, two and a half years living off the grid. So I would work in the city, but I had a cabin on a old professor's property he was an old professor from the university there who had uh, 60 acres. What university is off. that? What university is that? Western Washington University. Okay. And that's in Bellingham. Um, it's one of the state colleges, but it's it's kind of like the state college without frats. Huh. Uh, 
So it's it's just kind of like a up in Bellingham in the woods. I don't know if you're familiar with like Evergreen College out of Olympia, Washington. It's it's kind of like a liberal hippie place. Um, is, is that a private school or public? No, it's a public school. You've got the um, University of Washington, Western Washington University, um, Washington State, uh, Eastern. So there's a number of state schools here. Yeah. It's not an ag school. WSU, um, Washington State University, is the ag school here in Washington um, that has the extension service and all of the farm programs. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's it's interesting because it's like we there's because we have a lot of state schools for I mean Ohio has a pretty decent sized population for its land mass even though we still have a lot of country right or as Sam right. Sam Tripoli named it uh, ghetto country I think that's the best way to say Ohio, most of Ohio <laughs> it's ghetto country because we have like some I mean we have some thick urban environments but then at the same time you, you leave the urban environment and that's just all cornfields. <laughs> And you go back and it gets, right. and, and so it's, and it's like the, even the country people get kind of ghetto. So it's like, it's this appropriate, uh, <laughs> ghetto, ghetto country, you know, cause it's like, there's heavy Appalachian, like most, most the Appalachians from West Virginia, Ohio or West Virginia, right. Kentucky moved up to Ohio and, and like up to Detroit. Um, so it's, it's interesting. So we, we have a lot of ag schools, like Ohio state's so big. So it has, it's right. like a school for everything. And then like I went to university of Toledo, which was kind of a ghetto school, but we still had a, we, yeah. s- we still, we didn't have an agriculture department, but I think Bowling Green did, maybe we did, but it, we were more engineering. And then there's, there's just, there were so many, like most of the max of mid American is, is in Ohio. So it, it's, it's interesting to, to think, I mean, cause the West coast, I mean, so for people listening that aren't familiar with in, the differences between the West coast and Midwest, um, right. it's, it's a very, it's just, it's it, every state. The nice thing about the United States even being, you know, more, I, I prefer the term contrarian these days cause a lot of anarchists are annoying and then all the anti right. anti faw motherfuckers. Um, so anyways, uh, it's it's like a different country, but then it's like you know you meet people like you know like you and Luke Callahan, and it's like oh we're not we're really not that different. I mean it's you guys live in hipper no. you guys live in hipper areas. Like I live in like a I live I always say Columbus is like a a West Coast town or a West Coast city right. in the Midwest. Right. We're still like it's like Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah. Or even Kansas City. Kansas City's getting there. Like Kansas City right. has some some hip shit, but it's still like we're still years behind. I mean, I can still see right. trends right. that oh shit, this is going on in the middle and the uh, like. We just now like breweries are exploding here, but I think like you know fifteen twenty years ago that was doing that in in the West Coast. So um, oh, absolutely, absolutely, and well, and that's sort of what I was I was saying about how Spokane. To say a smaller example of that compared to Seattle, yeah. where Ohio has that compared to say like Colorado, yeah, and and so you'll just sort of see how and and you can take advantage of that. Absolutely, um, I am. If you if you I mean if you know what the fuck's going on, <laughs> yeah. then you're first to market, you know. And sometimes it means you just have to make a little shift or make a little room, uh, see what's not there, and you can just duplicate what's known to be successful. No, I mean, that's why they're models. You just have to apply it to your context. Yeah. And, and you know, it's like, 
it is that high-grade information. It is having your finger on the pulse of things. It's paying attention. Um, an example of this is both the co-op that I was um, a, a founding member of, but also the sub-business that the co-op has developed um, in addition to its functions just solely as a farmer-owned cooperative that distributes the goods produced by those farmers. Yeah, no, it's that's Which what it, you have, a farmer co-op? A farmer-owned co-op? Yes. Very yes, cool. Yes. So, I mean, maybe, okay, let me, let me explain that just for a minute, and then I'll go on to the other things that the co-op is doing, which sort of ties into what we were just talking about. So, um, basically speaking, it's a farmer-owned and worker-owned cooperative. And that means that every member is an owner of the company. The company is called Link Foods. That's L-I-N-C, and that stands for the Local Inland Northwest Cooperative, Link, Link Foods. And so each member is either a farmer or a worker, and currently there's only, I'll say, two workers who aren't also farmers, um, and a couple of those other workers are, say, more full-time staff than farmers, but equally tied into farming. Um, and so everyone's a member, everyone's an owner, and you become a member by filling out a form, and that form has the requirements of membership, um, which means that you meet our standards and values, uh, which are pretty simple and clear. It, it basically means that you produce essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say this. It's essentially you produce like you would if you had an organic certification, but you don't have an organic certification. So um, you don't want to pay the food police, Alexander? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I know that at times you need to, if it's directly tied to specific markets that you want to access that, I mean, Joel Fallison has said it best. It's, it's an access to markets. That's it, right? It's access to specific markets that require those specific I labels. Think, I think it's really and getting away from that, though, man. I think that I think people are are. I mean, thanks to documentaries, like as many shitty ones as there are, there's still really good ones. I mean, uh, my my buddy uh, Graham Merriweather made this documentary called American Meat. And unfortunately, because of his distributor, like it's not like you you would have to purchase it on Amazon, um, and it's not like a, a streamable free one. Hopefully, in the future, it will be. But man, before I got into this this space, I had no idea the difference between uh, commodity meat and then organic commodity meat. Which that's really what it is. It's really not any better. It's a little bit better. And then, right. as you know, I've heard you know Darby Simpson and. Uh, Greg Burns say, you know, beyond organic or even uh, Joel Salatin. And I think um, Omnivore's Dilemma, too. I mean, Michael Pollan's book did a great job of pointing out, you know, how can we call these things organic when basically what they're doing is it's pretty anti-organic. And I think if you're getting from, you know, Earth Fair or, or whatever it is, Organic Girl, there's salad greens 
they just fucking suck, man. Like they're not. You're getting a lot of wind feedback right now, Alexander. Yeah, sorry. You're all right, buddy. I'll I'll move. Yeah, and sorry for interrupting you too. I just I just heard you say that, and you know, it, as Joel Salatin does say, it is a it is it does get you access to markets. But I think you know, looking what Ray Tyler's doing, what Curtis Stone's doing, what you're doing. I think through your political act of creating what you're creating or or finding ways to get in these markets that we didn't necessarily think we could get into, which is kind of like overcoming limiting beliefs of that, I think it's tur- right. I think I think it's turning out not to be. Like cuz it's even because even if like let's say if you're a meat farmer and you pay for an organic certification it's not even worth the money. I think most people that raise meat beyond organic, I mean, when it when it comes to uh, money that you have to put into it to get the return, you you couldn't sell it to a place that you'd want that would want you to a, an organic label. You couldn't sell it and make the money unless you wanted subsidies. I think the only thing it's really good for at this point is subsidies, man. I think that's that's it. If if you want to 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 be a a non, uh, as Mark Shepard says, a professional begging organization and just rely on that. I think it's good. I mean, I, you know, and I can't say that I, I have friends that are, that are, that are, that think the same way we do. And they, you know, they, there was like sponsored programs within farmers markets that will pay for your certification. But man, I just think it's, it's just such a scam and, and anymore. And also then you're inviting somebody that doesn't know a lot about farming to come regulate the way you farm. And I, and I, and I and and to me it's like I just rather be my own quality control. I don't need like look, you can come to my farm. I think I think transparency is is just a better way to do it. You want to see how it's raised? Come see it. And 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 oh, I hear I hear you. And I'm sorry. You. I'm sorry I, for getting on that soapbox, man. This is a podcast about you. No. No, no, no. It's it's more like um I, I'm the everything guy, right? I'm the okay how much can I sell to this customer? Does this customer care about X, Y, and Z? Okay, fine. Now that I've met that customer's need, what other customers do I have? Well, there are some customers who, through market mechanisms, just explicitly demand certain certifications. And if you're looking to play the game, if you want to play ball, well, you got to play by the rules. And sometimes it's not exactly what you'd want to do because you can see all of the things that you said, which are true. Yeah. But you, sometimes you have to put on your big boy pants and just say, fine, if I You're want right. that market stream, <laughs> that's what it fucking requires. Yeah. You know? So like, I, I just, I'm the everything guy. If, if, if 98% of my customers cannot give a shit because they trust me, God bless them. If I can't sell any more products to those people, and I still have product to sell, and I have other farms that have product to sell, and this customer over here moves a shitload of volume, well, we're already doing it. We're already producing this way, right? Yeah. So, so if you can, how can, so if you can justify the How can I work the with expense. the regulator? How, yeah. how can I work with my co-op? How can we create less friction? in order to achieve the goals that we want to achieve. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I've, I've heard it put some way and it's, it's systemic jujitsu. Yeah. It, it's, it's trying to just, you know, 
keep your head straight about what you're doing, but you know, sometimes you got to do something and, and that's just the reality of it. Yeah, man. Another, another example of that is food safety. And there's specific types of food safety audits or requirements that aren't law that are strictly market driven. And oftentimes the people who even require those audits don't know what they really mean, but they know that their insurance company requires it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And again, it's not like it's fun. It's not like sexy. It's nobody wants to give a shit, but if you want to play ball, that's how you play ball. And so it's really more or less how do you play ball in the best way for you as you can. Yeah. And so like, you know, to, to sort of give real life context to some of that, it's that our cooperative as a mission has sought out customers that your average farm and especially the average size of our farmers who are that one to five acre primarily. There's some bigger operations, but we're smaller farms. Well, I'll even say we're micro farms, right? Compared to what the USDA wants to consider a small farm. But we sought out customers that those types of farms could never attain because they could never meet the volume that that customer wanted. And they could never meet, say, like the insurance policy that that customer would require, but they could never fill out enough paperwork, you know, in their own spare time to think that it was worthwhile in order to obtain that customer. And those types of customers are, say, hospitals, school districts, universities. And so when you really look at where food dollars are spent on a day-to-day basis, those types of institutions and not private companies, those types of large-scale institutions where they have both huge staff members that they're trying to feed on a daily basis, but also either patients or students, it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars a day. It far outpaces like the kinds of dollars that are spent at farmers markets. I mean, it's it's vast. You capture the smallest percentage of those types of market streams, and every single one of your farms will sell out of all of its product automatically. And you can pretty much set your price to that point where it's the higher end of what they could otherwise order. But because of the nature of the organization, because of the mission of the organization, and because of the nature of the farm involved in that organization, those institutions that we're serving receive the benefit of our good marketing. So now those institutions are supporting the community and therefore meeting their mission goals. So one of our primary customers, I'm sure you actually may be familiar with it now, is Gonzaga University. Yeah, Gonzaga Bulldogs. I've been a fan of Gonzaga since I was in eighth grade, and they almost they made it to the Final Four, but they lost to Duke, very close. close. They had right. they had Santangelo and Fromm and and all those guys. <laughs> I was such a fan when I was in eighth grade. Right. But yeah, that's so, I mean so that's, that university is our biggest customer, one of our largest customers in our cooperative. That's amazing. And their dining services purchases more local organic food, right? Organically produced food 
than I would suppose almost any university in this country. And it's because of the nature of our co-op, which is that we've said to ourselves, okay, what's required of us in order to sell to that institution? Well, it, it means having a you know $5 million insurance policy. It means that you have a food safety plan. It means that you require each of your farms to follow, you know, a certain set of reasonable practices to have their product be able to enter into their food stream in their university. You know, they're feeding their students, they're feeding their staff. They, as an institution, will have certain demands upon the, the quality of, of what's going into that university, right? Yeah. And so we've said, okay, fine. We'll do the paperwork. We'll do the legwork, you know, and it even meant partnering with other distribution companies in Spokane because there were contracts with larger food distribution companies that said if there were any third-party distribution companies, they have to go through certain warehouses because those warehouses have food safety controls and, you know, all this type of stuff that, you know, for the average small micro farmer, you, right, the other people in our course, who have our dispositions, we would, we would say, Hey, this is, this is not our customer, right? This is, there's too much work to be had there, but, but that's, that's potentially is your customer. Yeah. So that's potentially a limiting belief because you guys are doing it. Is absolutely. 100%. 100%. And so, you know, the other thing is like, we feed more local organic food to our school districts than almost any other co-op in the nation. You know, That's I might be insane. stepping on a, on a limb there, but like we're right there. But and, I mean, but you're doing exactly what you talked about with your previous businesses. Like you are, you know, somebody said it today just because like I'm trying to live the lifestyle of being the change I want to see in the world. And that's exactly what right. you're doing. Right. And it's it's meeting those larger food goals, like the kind of food goals that even Mark Shepard does talk about where he's like, if we're not filling the grocery store shelves, if we're not like actually hitting that commodity level with this type of agriculture, you know, we're just like drops in in the ocean. Yeah. And so our goal as a co-op is to entirely redefine the food system in our region top to bottom like it's entirely open season on the way that food is done in the inland northwest as far as we're concerned and we're doing it because we now have over 50 local farms who are all cooperative members who are receiving the benefits of the cooperative and who are gaining access to markets that no other set of farmers have access to in the inland Northwest. Because all of those other markets, the markets that we're tapping into are all served by Cisco and FSA and Sodexo and any other, you know, multinational corporation that's shipping shit from wherever to whomever, whenever. Right. So like it's big, you know, it's really big. Um, and the main thing like that really works for our co-op is how we do the distribution, how we come up with what the production mechanisms are, how we 
distribute our food, um, what the farmer doesn't have to do anymore. So here's a, here's a, just an example, right? You're in any city in USA and there's 25 local farms and they're all trying to do the same shit, right? Yeah. So there's 25 local restaurants, right? And there's one chef in each one of those and he's got to talk to 25 farms a week. All 25 are going to all 25, right? Let me just keep one. Kind of a clusterfuck, right? Nobody's really winning because the chef's got to pick and choose. Everybody's undercutting everybody. Nobody knows who exists. Nobody knows who's doing what. Nobody knows what's missing. Everybody's trying to do the same shit, right? So what we do instead is we have one salesperson who does all of our restaurant accounts. And that one person deals with the one chef. And that person represents the co-op. And the co-op then lists every single product that the farmer has. And that's listed at the farmer price. The farmer sets the price. So it's an it's a open market. Everyone lists all their products openly and everybody chooses their own prices. And then that chef has the ability to see every single local product available to him that has the same exact standards of quality and the price. And most of the time, we have enough demand now where it's just, it all goes. We really don't try and have a scarcity mindset. We have, we have really try and have, have an, an opposite. We have abundance. Rather than like, I'm trying to compete with this farmer down the street or down the road, even though we're trying to do the same thing, we're trying to come up the same way, we're trying to rejuvenate our land in the same way, we're trying to feed our community in the same way, we should not be the ones fighting. We should be the ones working together, and we should be meeting a larger demand than fighting over the scraps on the bottom end of the food chain. Yeah. And so we can go into these places and we can, during season, essentially cut out the entire other food distribution, uh, FSA, Cisco. They, they just disappear off the menu because we can hit the spread. Now, how do we hit the spread? At the end of every year, we get together with every single one of our customers and we run through what we sold them and what they expect to increase and what we were short on. And we get projections from them. As far as variety, pounds per week, we work with them on developing menus. We work with them on seasonal. And then we can project our PARs within our own co-op. So we have an annual meeting where every member shows up and we lay out, this is the known pound per week per variety as our customers are currently demanding. Who's going to grow these pounds? And essentially every farm has their own ability and can allocate enough of any given product to themselves in order to, um, you know, have enough to grow, enough to be able to um, meet their own demands. So at that commitment meeting, we just lay it out on paper, honestly. Like there's 50 farmers in a room. Everything's on a spreadsheet. 
you know, it's 100 pounds of carrots a week for this customer who wants to do it. It's 100 pounds of beets a week for this customer who wants to do it. It's 100 pounds of salad mix per week for this customer who wants to do it. And, you know, we just work it out. And so, so, so what do you guys do if a farmer can't meet the demands of those customers? Do you just come together and help them out? Like, is it, do you, do you guys each plan right, so we, for spoilage amongst each farm? We, we've worked it out with uh, the idea of that you, you both want to allow a farm to grow year over year. And so it takes time for that farmer to meet the full demand that may be expected of him say, in a year or two, right? You don't want to just turn around and say another farm gets, say, you know, X amount of pounds because you can't do it right now. We want to set our farmers up for success. We want to say, okay, hey, this year, you know, you do 75% of this number. This farm here will have 25% and we'll have this farm here do 10% to, to cover the spread and any increased demand, right? So that if somebody falls through entirely, we still have some level of of backup. And also that farms grow the same things that, you know, you you want farms to be able to have a diversity of product being grown on their farm. We're not trying to force people to say, be the monocrop like tomato guy, carrot guy, salad guy, right? You, you want rotations as well. So it, it takes a, a holistic approach to try and resolve this you know it's it's it can be a sticky issue um but we we've looked at what other co-ops have done so there's another co-op in montana called the western montana growers co-op and they've been around for a long time and you know we've seen like what sustainability looks like for them and what what some of their mechanisms for membership are and how it is that they've allocated who grows what because you know, when, when you're, you're a farmer's co-op, you're different than just a food distribution company. A food distribution company buys product off of farms who don't own that distribution company. So a sales guy comes out and looks at your field and says, like, I'll give you, you know, 20 cents a pound for whatever you got, right? Yeah. Farmer's co-op is different. The farmer owns that distribution channel, okay? It owns the means of production. It owns the means of distribution. It sets its own prices. It sets its its notion of membership. It chooses its own board as leadership. Um, you know, everything is based off of consensus and transparency and, and you know, total ownership of of the whole situation. So, you know, we have to work on how all of these things function. But again, it, it hits those... I don't think that most farmers in the co-op you know, maybe even recognize what kind of political notions it fulfills. But here you have a, a group of people coming together, non-coerced, under their own intention, voluntarily, can leave it in time, can participate together, prove their own well-being. Hey, one right? second. It's getting, uh, it was getting a little smushy there, and you were saying some good yeah. shit. <laughs> well, so it's, it's just we're coming together to, to make it work for ourselves. Right. Yeah. And and so um, the commitment meeting to me is one of those really wonderful things that we've developed in our farming community where where three years ago, these 50 farms weren't coming together to try and really figure out what the, the growing scene is like in your area. 
to know who does what well, to know what you should do better, to know where there's gaps missing in the market, to know what the prices are, to know what the prices could be, um, to know where the demand's coming from. And then to be able to project out like, okay, are we going to have 20% growth in these areas? Like who are our new customers? What are they demanding? Who's going to grow that? So that when the season rolls around again, like we know that we can provide what the customer is really going to want in the way that that distribution company can, because they just only purchase what they want. But in our case, it benefits us because we've figured out what to grow and who we're growing it for and what the price is. Um, Absolutely. And so it's leaps, it's leaps and bounds ahead of just being out there on your own. Um, and here's the other reason why. The co-op places all of our listings online. So we have an online sales platform. So any customer can order whatever they want from the co-op online at any time. And we have two cutoff periods during the week. So you order by Sunday night and you receive it Tuesday. You order by Wednesday night and you receive it Friday. And um, the prices are set by the farmer. The farmer lists all of their own products, has pictures, has a bio. And those orders are then placed. You receive an email when an order is placed, you know, directly to your phone. So say, take me, for example, I can wake up in the morning. I can walk out to my field with my smartphone. I can update my projected product, what I'm going to harvest. I can then update my listing, set my price, harvest my product. And while I'm doing so, that product's being sold. That's amazing. Both online and with a sales guy who's out twice a week delivering that product. So he walks into the the restaurant with my product and says, here's that 25 pounds that you wanted for Tuesday. You're still on for the 25 pounds for Friday. She says, yes. He plugs it in in his smartphone. And while I'm washing those greens, I get an email saying that I just sold 25 pounds of greens. Now, all did, I have to do as a go ahead. Oh no, keep going. Finish, and then I'll ask you. Uh, all, all I have to do then, as a farmer, is print off what's been purchased from me for that three-day period, pack it up. You know, we require a, a clean bag in a clean box, labeled, and all I have to do is bring it down to our centrally located distribution hub in Spokane, Washington. It's kept in our large walk-in cooler. And on the delivery day, it's put onto the delivery truck and it's delivered for me. So from the perspective of your cost of goods sold, I don't know how to do it any cheaper for farmers because all that the co-op takes is a 25% markup on the product. So I set my price and the co-op adds the 25% onto it price, I receive my full price and the co-op takes the 25% to do all the sales, all the marketing, all the distribution. And so when I look at my company as a price, I don't think that I could do the cost of goods sold for any less than 25% anyway. And so I get to focus on what I do, which is farm. And I get to allow my co-op to do the other half or the other 25% of my business, which is the sales, the marketing, the distribution, and the collection of funds, which I receive on an automatic net 15 and I don't have to collect from a single customer. 
That's amazing. And so when you guys were setting up the co-op, how did you decide to how did you get decide what salesperson to get? How did you guys set up the interface? How did you guys grow uh right. How did you guys grow customers to get so they would know that they could order online? I mean, right. What what Well, so we've we are extremely lucky in that the founding members of our organization are just savvy. They're fucking smart. They're educated. They've got business degrees. Uh, Beth Robinette is a fourth generation uh, rancher. Um, her ranch just west of town of mine is an Alan Savory holistic management center. Um, so they actually are like, you know, one of the pioneers of holistic management as a, as a grazing model and as a business model, as a decision-making model. And they give courses there. Their organization is called um, Roots of Resilience, I believe. Um, and she is, you know, uh, has a business degree in uh, local food economies. Um, her business partner, uh, Joel Williamson is, um, equally has a business degree, um, and his farmer background, his family ran, um, a nursery that grew roses actually here in Spokane. Um, and so they were coming from it from like, we've seen other food distribution hub models, what you call an aggregator, right? Yeah. But they also knew the suffering, I'll call it, and plight of the small farmer because they actually, you know, lived it firsthand. And so they knew that there had to be a different version of marketing that had to be direct. And so Beth was really keen to this because her ranch went direct marketing with their their beef and, you know, it just changed the whole picture for them. So they only sell halves and holes. It's slaughtered on farm. The customer deals with the butcher. You know the routine. It's outside yeah. the USDA. And so, you know, she just kind of developed this foothold within the local food scene and also knew what was possible, had the bigger, had the bigger vision of saying, let's get institutional buyers. Let's not you know, try and dick around at the farmer's market so much per se. Let's really try and redefine how food is produced, distributed, consumed, appreciated. And, and so we just really planted our flag and said, these are the values that we have. And we know, I mean, we know, we know that that's what the customer really wants. It's not, it's not a mystery to us that they want local food that's produced in a way that is healthy for them and in their communities. Um, and so it, it really didn't take much to convince, you know, most of our, our customers, it was more or less just like, um, they just said, yes, I don't really know how else to put it. I mean, they just, they just said, you have the capacity to do this. You know, I mean, Hey, when we started like everything, 
I don't want to make it seem like it just, you know, is so easy. Like when, when we started, Beth likes to joke that it was done out of a, a Toyota Corolla behind the dumpster, right? Because it was. It was like, hey, meet me behind the dumpster over at the restaurant when you've got your carrots, you know? Like when we first started, it was a couple of farms and trying to hustle some veggies to some people, you know? And once you are like, okay, the Corolla is too small. We've got to get like a refrigerated truck. <laughs> you know, you, you figure out how to get the refrigerated truck. And so, okay, the refrigerated truck can only do so much. Like who can we use to distribute our food? So we teamed up with the local food bank that had cold storage. And they said, you can use this corner for, you know, so long. And so we hustled veggies out of the corner of the food bank. and then. We teamed up with the, a local charity organization that distributed food that was gleaned from fruit trees to the homeless, and they had a cold storage unit. And so we hustled veggies out of that cold storage unit until just last year when we were finally at the capacity where that cold storage unit didn't work for us, and we had to get like a real warehouse space where we put in a solid you know, massive walk-in cooler. And now we have the ability to store most of our members' goods, you know, for a longer period of time than maybe they have the capacity to store on their on their own farm. So, you know, like just until, say, this past turning year, did our co-op really even have what you would consider real owned infrastructure as a food distribution company? I mean, we had one truck and borrowed space. We were doing all of this on one truck and borrowed space. So it's a hustle, I mean, for sure. But we've made it work. Um, you know, our, our food sales last year through the co-op were 250000 Wow. And that is representative of money going directly back to the farmer. So it's interesting because when we do our books, the co-op's cost of goods sold is equally representative of the money made by farms. So this past month alone, we did $65,000 in sales. Wow. And, and so that's representative of like what's really possible. Now you may say, okay, well, you got 50, 50 farms, they each did a thousand bucks, you know, big deal. Well, you know, that's also like say March. Yeah, and um, especially when you guys have a frost day as late as May. Right, right. Yeah, so so last year you only did 250000 but you already are at 65000 in March. Yes. That's a, that's a pretty that just, good growth. Yeah, I mean, just say with the customer of Gonzaga alone, year over year, our growth was 1,111%. <laughs> so, like, shit's out of hand. In, in terms of, you know, that's going to happen for, for this year and maybe one more, and then it's going to kind of be more like regular growth, you know, your 5-10% kind of situation. Because we're really just, our, our customers are just finally like coming out of the dark and realizing, oh, this is real shit. Like they aren't fucking around. They don't mean to disappear. Like they really are doing what they say. And and that's when it's like, oh, we're going to fully invest in what you do. We we put our pinky in, you you blew our expectations away, we're in. 
and one example of that is that we're now having our co-op create its own collective CSA or farmer's market box. And we have now been able to get two hospitals in the region, one here in Spokane and, and one in Idaho and Coeur d'Alene to have CSA boxes be available at not only to their staff at the hospital, but also be able to be prescribed by their doctor. So you have a situation where there's real food actually entering into the health system. That's amazing. Which is like, and, which most of us know we wouldn't have as many issues if people would lie more on food instead of drugs. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you go into the hospital to get well and, and, and they give you high fructose corn syrup and, and red dye 40. You, you have to wonder what the fuck is going on, right? Absolutely. Versus, versus oh, you know, I have all of these health conditions. You know, the first question your doctor should probably ask, like, are you drinking water? You know, do you sleep? Um, what do you eat? <laughs> you know, do you move around? Right. No, but for yeah, like getting exactly. out the pill. And if there is a problem, well, okay, drink more water, sleep, move around. And by the way, if you need help gaining access to good quality food, you can sign up here, pick your options and receive it every week. And, and, you know, that's really where we're trying to go. We're trying, I've, I've put it in the co-op. We're trying to be able to feed you when you wake up. We're trying to feed your kids when they're at school. We're trying to be able to feed you when you go to the local restaurant for lunch. We're trying to feed you when you go out for dinner. We're trying to feed you when you're in the hospital. We're trying to feed you when you are at school. We're actually trying to feed you in your life, not not as a special one-off, not as because you can afford it, but because we've actually recreated the food system to honestly and genuinely meet the food demand of your community. Yeah. And it it takes work. And sometimes it takes the work that maybe is that unsexy work, that work that maybe is easy to rag on. um, Yeah, but I mean, in reality though... can be subverted, you know, by, by an individual farm. Don't get me wrong, you can do it. Yeah, but but I I agree with you because This is another model. Yeah, but it, it, you know, what's great about it is, is it's, it goes back to, so do you want to bitch about it or do you actually want to make a difference? And it's like, I went right. on this big rant earlier in the conversation. I'm bitching about it, man. I'm, I'm complaining. <laughs> I'm, that's what I was doing. I mean, if you want to make it, I mean, to make it as simple as possible, right. I was just bitching. I mean, I was complaining right. and it's like, so do you want to complain or do you want to try to change it? The only way to change it, right. unfortunately, in a lot of ways, is to is to play their game. I think. I mean, there's other subversion. Well, I think, like I, you know, like when I think about it, like I did make points. Like there's other ways, but look, I mean, do you, if you want to make a difference, you know, if you really want to make changes and you really want your food to reach people, then you're absolutely right, man. I mean, if I mean, think about like let's say hypothetically. I form a co-op over the next 10 years and we manage to get food sold into Ohio State with 55,000 students. There you go. What kind of impact would that have? That'd have a huge impact. 
you you have to like sometimes really step back and and realize how some of these what seem like maybe small things like say selling carrots into the state university's food system can suddenly become huge things for that university. That university has its own goals. It probably has certain environmental goals. It has certain energy goals. They have certain student goals. They have all of these other missions. And if your organization can satisfy their mission and they have to do nothing but buy your shit, like you, you gain and they gain in a way that like puts you in this place that nobody can touch. Nobody can touch you there. Like the food distribution companies can't provide that same value to the prospective student. The prospective student says, I want to go to a university that meets my values. I want good quality food. What's, what schools can I go to that get good quality food? Oh, well, not that one. You know, oh, this one does. Okay, well, you know, what kind of students is that school now retaining? What is their tuition cost now? You know, like, there's all of these other ripples in the market that you can use to your own advantage. Um, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about, like, the synergistic value of marketing, the partnerships that you can create that, like I say, don't require really any extra work. It, it's more or less just articulating what it is that you do in a specific way that they can take you back. And it, and it works. And it works with so many of the customers that you're trying to do. It, it works with local gyms, right? All of those people are captive audience. They want to be healthy. Well, here's an easy way to be healthy, right? It takes nothing more than framing the issue. Oh, you go to the hospital. You want to be well. Well, here's better food. Oh, you know, your kid's complaining about the garbage that he has to eat at school. Well, you know, here's a solution, right? Yeah. It works and it works really well. Um, but so in addition to this, in addition to all of this, the co-op itself took it upon itself to find its own value add. So in addition to say selling uh, CSA locks, um, we've invested in a mini malting operation. So this is sort of like the sub-business that the co-op runs, and it's called Palouse Pint, and it's a mini malter that produces one-of-a-kind, single-batch, direct-from-farm malt for all of the microbrewers in our region. How so to give a little have? backstory, what's that? How many breweries do you guys How have? Like 50, 60? Oh, it's the, I mean, there's a lot. You know, I actually heard a number, I think, uh, on the the news the other night that I thought was low. I think that it said, I think that it said that there were like 2,800 in the United States yeah. considered like craft brewers. That, that and I, I thought low. that that was like kind of low. But I, I think that maybe when you really kind of think about like that's probably established distributing you know or maybe, maybe but also too main. like it's picking up i think that number could probably easily double within the next two years because I, I mean because i'll tell you what out here 
in in Washington and in Oregon. It's common. It, it feels like there's probably 2,800 in my town. Yeah. Well, I mean, so <laughs> I mean, it's, you, it's out of control. So it's for Spokane, like metropolitan area, is that mainly where right. the co-op is selling, or is it expanding out out of the metropolitan? No, it 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 has an and also like in a really interesting way. Um, so just to kind of touch base on where we are and what we do, we had to define what local meant to us because both membership and distribution is attempting to meet a notion of local. And that's that's important for a lot of reasons because I think a lot of people, I know even like meat farmers that I've had this conversation with that they, they do a local farmer's market, but then they're in kind of like this small, you know, to get cheap land, a lot of times you have to go far out where you can't even get internet service and then... That local right. food economy is not the hippest, and that's not necessarily where you can sell it. Right. And and so this has been an interesting challenge as well uh, for a number of reasons. So one is we, hey, we looked at what are all the known resources and what are their actual definitions of local, right? Just purvey the scene. You know, what, what does Michael Pollan say, right? What does the USDA say? Basically, everyone says, we have no idea what local means. There's <laughs> <Right? laughs> so like it, it's so amorphous, right? But basically, the only thing that we could really kind of come down to was 400 miles. And now 400 miles, right? Oh, gee, that seems far, right? But when you when you do put it on a map, and you you kind of draw out the circle, and you say 400 miles, and you say maybe four hours drive or something like that, right? It it does kind of give you more of a a watershed type of perimeter. It gives you a regional perimeter. And, and in a way, I, I think that that's okay. I think that anything beyond that really does start to stretch the imagination of local uh, beyond maybe what a normal person asked on the street would say it meant, right? And, and we didn't want to distort that to a point where our customer would kind of feel like it wasn't what we were selling it as. Yeah. Because we sell local food, right? We don't we don't source food that's not from our 400 miles outside of Spokane. So it's basically this doesn't even hit the Cascade Mountains for us. It kind of goes up close to the Canadian border, and it pushes out just across into Idaho, Coeur d'Alene, Sandpoint, Moscow, and down through Pullman, Washington, and, and out to what's called the Tri-Cities. So a little bit of the Columbia Basin, the Palouse, um, Moscow, Idaho, and say northern Stevens County kind of areas are included in both who can be a, a member and also where it is that we would source any food if there were any shortage from, say, a farmer who could meet our demand you know, at some point in time. Um, so that, that was kind of our, our notion of, of local. And, you know, it's, it's one of those weird kind of things to even try and attempt to define, but we kind of did it both on, on geography, on what was stated, what was a reasonable region to be able to include enough farmers for it to be viable. And also to meet, you know, like what the, the market would say that meant. Um, but you know, for, for our, me, I'm 10 minutes from downtown Spokane, right? So my farm is 10 minutes from 400,000 people, right? Yeah. So I do make a point through my co-op to market my product as hyper-local. Yeah, so when you guys are distributing customers, 
um, through from the co-op, it's basically okay. Who's closest to here? Is that what you guys try to do, or is that what you try to do individually within the organization? I, I, I try and I try and do everything that I can for my own farm within the organization. Meaning that I my products are branded by my farm. I try and have them well packaged. I try and have them exceptionally clean. You know, I try and have my farm be represented as my farm. Yeah. Um, but, and, and that's why I also reach out through all kinds of mechanisms, you know, in particular social media to say, hey, I'm 10 minutes away. You know, my quality meets the highest quality. And, you know, I've been able to develop specific products that those customers, the high-end restaurants in downtown Spokane are really demanding. And, and you know, it, it's it's just, I've just taken upon myself to try and establish myself as as the highest quality. That makes sense. That's good. And, and, and you're selling just the same products from the course, right? I mean, just mainly salad mix, microgreens, baby root crops. Are you, are you expanding beyond that? And actually, I didn't it, even ask it, you how much, right. how much of your guys's, of your family's land, like how much acreage are you farming? Well, okay. So the, the farm is, is intensive. It's hundred foot beds, 30 inches wide, 12 inch paths. And essentially I focus on baby roots and baby greens. I don't do microgreens at this point in time just because my infrastructure to do so just hasn't quite been in the position to make that a viable move for me. Um, you know, I've spent the past, this is just going to be my third growing season at this site. So the past two years has largely been infrastructure development, market development, you know, observing, responding, you know, just dialing everything in. So, um, greens and baby roots in particular, baby carrots. Nice. Um, I, I've found a real niche with providing the four inch perfect non forked tip with just like, you know, the one inch of green left on the top. And chefs can immediately use these. There's no prep for them. They're, they're perfectly clean. The tops have already been essentially removed minus that little green, you know, one inch nub that allows the, the vegetable to still remain in, in like a whole complete, um, you know, version of itself. It's unadulterated, right? It's raw. That seems to be like a thing. Like they, they want to be able to showcase a whole vegetable as it is and, and use that in a way that complements say what else is on the plate. So they'll use that four, five, I mean, Christ, maybe some guys will even just use like three carrots, you know, on a plate, but it's, it's done in a way that fits on the dimension of the plate. It has the color uh, contrast and, and it's easy for them to use. And they've basically bought, that as I, I can't even keep up um, with how many are purchased. And I currently sell those at $4 a pound. Um, there's a little bit of time that's associated with the wash that I'd like to really bring down on that. But um, for me, you know, in terms of like something that's a high volume at that price point, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think chefs like the way root, man, it's weird. Like, I mean, just even like pe- root crops, when you see the whole plant, it's like chefs really like that, especially for their Instagram accounts around here. Right. And, you know, one one thing that I, I did that I found really interesting is I sort of invented a new product that, that I called a, a braising beet shoot. And I, I seeded out beets as if you were going to do for baby beet greens, right? Super dense, 12 row, right? Yeah. And uh, didn't cut the green, pulled the whole thing right at the moment that the, the bulb just, just poked out, just bulb, right? So you've got a little beet just right when the root starts to round. I mean, we're talking like a couple millimeters across, right? Real tiny. And pulled the whole thing, sprayed the whole thing off. And so you've got full green top, like a two-inch green top, and like a two-inch little root shoot. You know, and if you do like gold stones or you do chiogias, you get the orange-red contrast with the green top. And it's about four inches, five inches long in length, right? And you can basically wash them like baby greens and package them in pretty much the same way. And and they loved it. They would braise them down and twirl them up and you'd get these flashes of color. And so you're kind of doing microgreen, but it's whole vegetable, that root tip. And so sometimes even like the little, you know, tap root that's like that extra four inches long, the real tiny little thread, like they would twirl them all up and it provided this really kind of like interesting raw thing that nobody else could could offer right and um i think that there's really something to observing the growth habits of your plants and capturing them in moments that have real appeal some kind of level of uh, creative inspiration that can be given to that customer you know if if a chef can actually receive something that causes them to think differently you know they'll go for it they'll bite yeah so those are the types of things that i've just been focusing on and 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 i'm only operating on a half an acre i mean it's 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 40 100 foot beds and i have an extra 30 50 foot beds that i've just kind of been doing long season crops for like myself in honestly at this point but this year you know, they're going to be more in an intensive um, rotation with the rest of it. But it's small. It's small. It's it's like, you know, what we're doing in the course. It's it's what Curtis Stone does. It's, you know, what, what Elliot Coleman and John Martin and all the guys have dialed in. You know, it works. Um, I've had great success with it. You know, I'm I'm low to no kill since the time that I turned the sod, um, you know, really easy bed prep, you know, standard broad fork, rake it, seed it. Um, you know, it's, it's easy. It's not a lot, of, a lot of tools, you know, um, to not wander too much to kind of just touch base with, with that, mini malting operation before I forget about it. Oh yeah. Sorry, man. I didn't mean to, uh, no, no, I didn't mean to, we, we diverted, we diverted, we still covered good stuff. I'm glad you remembered. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's the deal. 
So I'm working at the mill, right? I'm making chicken feed. I'm buying all this grain, okay? So at the time, as it turned out, my girlfriend's father was a barley breeder for Oregon State University. And as it turns out, Pat Hayes is like a a world-renowned barley breeder. He's like one of the last of, say, a handful of publicly funded barley breeders in the world. And he develops barley for the Willamette Valley in particular, one of the biggest grain-growing regions there is. Uh, between the Palouse, the Columbia Basin, and the Willamette Valley here, you know, in, in eastern Washington and, and Oregon, um, you know, you produce a lot of grain out here. And so he develops grain specifically for this region. It's, it's not GMO. It's actually just selective breeding, which is the way that all domesticated varieties that we love have been created, including heirlooms through selective breeding. Get out of town. Um, what's that? <laughs> I said, get out of town. It's like, <laughs> right. So it's, it's not, it's not GMO, but it, it's, it's science. It's just high quality. It's science, bitch. <laughs> yes. They know what they're talking about. Right. So, um, he, he develops particularly barley intended for the use in beer. And it's because he's wanted the farmers to not just sell barley to, you know, be eaten or turned into bread or just, you know, not value added. So he tries to develop strains and varieties that will work in the region so that those farmers can sell a high value crop to somebody who's going to add a lot more value to it. So they have more money to spend. So I just got kind of like, you know, the inside scoop down low on what the hell's going on in the grain world and barley world and beer world from somebody who was, you know, like literally one in a million as far as knowing that kind of thing. And so at the time he was talking about mini malting. And so what happens here in the beer world is that there's just basically like a handful of malt houses that make all the malt for all the beer. So Budweiser needs a shitload of malt, right? And they're going to want it to be the same all the time because Budweiser's Budweiser. It's not like the 2008 Budweiser is better than the 2012. They, they rely right? on it tasting the same. It's not, they don't, they're, yeah. they're so big. They they're, don't want variety. Right. And so that means that there has to be huge companies that can supply that level of malt to those types of brewers, which basically just has over time, like everything else in ag, screwed over the little guy, ruined, you know, the local trades, and it all got centralized and commodified. So, you know, at the mill, we were recreating the local mill that made flour and ground you know, grains and made seeds, right? And and so he's talking about doing that with malt. So they, they had to develop the actual machinery and infrastructure to malt on a small scale because there just weren't any small-scale malters anymore. So mini-malting is now this burgeoning economy. There's companies that now develop what's called mini malters. And when I say mini, I mean that they fit inside of a small warehouse as opposed to, 
you know, being an acre sized warehouse that does this. So we, we can do what's considered small batches, which is like several tons at a time, yeah. as opposed to, you know, the hundreds of thousands of tons that these guys are, are turning through. So the other difference is just that we now have the capacity to purchase our members grain malt it and sell that malt to all of our local brewers as in one of a kind direct from farm organically produced malt that will provide their beer with a unique flavor and an unmatched profile and more marketing capacity than any other malt that they could use. So the it's called Palouse Pint and Palouse Pint Malt House is now distributing these malts um, both online and to all of our local brewers. So you have a circumstance where a farmer owned co-op has purchased value adding equipment collectively so as to purchase members products to value add that product to sell to other local businesses to value add their products so that the end consumer can come in and say, I'm purchasing a product that was grown by farmers in my region, distributed directly by those farmers, purchased here at the brewery, and I'm enjoying this beer that I know no one else in the world can ever possibly drink. That's awesome, man. So, so there's a huge opportunity for micro-malting, is what you're saying. Huge. Huge. That's great. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, the equipment is not cheap. Um, it cost us, I think somewhere in the range of a half a million dollars to do. Um, we raised, um, the $250,000 from private equity and we got matching funds from a, a co-op that does lending. So there's a, a co-op out of New York City called Working Hands, and Working Hands only lends to other co-ops. And so they've got really unique types of lending opportunities where um, it's like the amount of money that we pay back to them goes into our own capital account, and we can leverage debts against that capital account even as we pay it back. Um, and they also have interesting matching funds types of things where if you raise the private equity, then they'll match whatever private equity it is that you've raised. And so that private equity is getting paid back a 5% dividend on the production of the malt. Um, that's but, great. you know, we made it work. Um, and like I said, that's sort of like, you know, looking at it from like that bigger business perspective of, okay, you know, do we have the group balls to um, borrow half a million dollars on a mini malting operation, you know? <laughs> and we were all like, yes. And the reason why we're doing that is because, you know, as seasonal production exists between the months of, say, you know, November to April, there's not a lot of clear volume of products to move. And so we needed, you know, the year-round production in order to offset that yearly dip in sales in order for us to, 
you know, be able to project a certain level of viability. Um, and, and so that's why we settled on the, on the mini multi operation because it fit, you know, all of our, our profiles really well. Um, that's excellent. And, man. you know, just another, another example of how the co-op is doing something that, you know, an individual farm would, would certainly never be able to attain on its own. Absolutely, um, man. I think, I think what you guys are doing is awesome, man. And, uh, I tell you what, Alexander, I could probably talk to you for another hour and a half and, and, uh, but I actually, man, probably, yeah, I got to get going, but, uh, I would love to have you on again and talk more about everything else you guys are doing. If you're down to come back on and do a part two. Um, oh no, absolutely. I'm, I'm down, I'm down to talk because you know, like just some of the other things just really briefly that this brings along is that we now have a co-op have the ability to leverage our organization, um, both in purchasing power so we can purchase goods that we all need at once. So boxes, bins, agribon, seeds, all of these other things, right? The other thing is that we can have intra-co-op sales. So I buy the guy's bacon, he buys my eggs. The co-op still makes that 25% off of that. We can set aside that money and we can start to, say, offer micro-loans to our own farmers every year for infrastructure needs that they have. We can have a shared tool bank that we can all purchase collectively and write off you know, as a, as a, a company expense that we can all share. There's all of these longer-term institutionalizing of ourselves that can go a long way in just developing farm communities as a whole. So, you know, there's, there's huge power in it, and there's huge power in the fact that it's, you know, all democratic, all direct, all voluntary. You know, I really do encourage anybody who is a part of a farm community where they could look out and, you know, maybe start to have these conversations because I, I really do think that it's, it's something that needs to happen more. Absolutely, man. I'm, I'm a hundred percent. And I think, uh, the more, you know, now that, now that I've had this time to think about what exactly my plan of attack is and it's, it's my second year. And if a lot of this stuff is going to happen, you know, it, it's, you know, the obstacles is the way. And I think, you know, there's certain people who just, you know, Columbus has a growing scene and there's always, you know, there's always politics. And I think the sooner people can get over these politics and realize, um, you know, and we can all come collectively together and realize that, you know, we have the power in numbers. I, th- I think that the, oh, yeah. the, the better it's going to be. And I, I think that... Um, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's something that my bookkeeper, you know, she, she helps me out and she's in the, she's actually getting her, her bachelor's and from, uh, and she's basically getting an agribusiness degree and she said, you should really look into starting a co-op and, right. uh, and you know, it, I need it, I need to follow up with her, but she's been working on graduating, but you know, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, I, I was thinking aggregator and then it's like, man, I, it's not that I dislike farming. I'm, I'm good at sales. And it's like, you know, I think that the power of me farming, having a podcast and talking about, it, I could still source other produce from different farmers if I have the, the demand. And I, oh, yeah. and, and I think it's, you know, I think it's, 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 um, 
you know, there's there's puzzle pieces that I there's a puzzle that I can construct myself, and there's pieces that I can place in there myself. It's like I, I gotta fi- I I feel like I'm figuring out what it is, and and it's like the more I think about it, it's like man, I think co-op is is really the way, and I think it's, it's it, a, it has it has all of the aspects of an aggregator, right? You're sourcing products. The the, the co-op itself is its own institution, right? It's doing that that business. The, the large difference is just that the individuals who are supplying the product have a stake, have a say, can set the prices, you know, receive all of the benefits that you would want to receive as a farmer. And I think that farming, you know, can give you the insight as to why those things are important and why the change in, say, distribution model really can help that farmer. So, you know, if you're just part-time farming, that's awesome. Find a way to move your product, right? You could totally be the salesperson for the co-op. Our salesperson is a farmer who focuses on on cherry tomatoes and, and peppers and basil and baby squash. And that's his gig. That's what he likes to do, and he, and he kills it. But it also gives him enough time to, to go and, and do sales full-time. So, you know, there's, there's I think, room for everything. Um, you know, I, I really think that it's important to just always keep your mind open to to all possibilities that are out there for you. Absolutely, man. And absolutely. And, uh, maybe, maybe I should say absolutely a bunch of times. Um, <laughs> yeah, man, we got to have a, a part two. Uh, I'll, I'll, now that I got your number, I'll text you and let's, let's try to do that next week. If you got the time, it's before the growing season's really taken off, but you know, real yeah, quick. Sure. Before we go, if people want to check out your farm, if people want to to look into your guys' co-op and check out things, what's the best way for them to do that? Right. So my farm is Ace of Spades Farm, and that's just at aceofspadesfarm.com. You can find me on the Instagram at aceofspadesfarm. The co-op is Link Foods. L-I-N-C Foods Link Foods and the mini malter is Palouse Pint and that's Palouse like the great region that it is P-A-L-O-U-S-E Pint Palouse Pint and so you can see all of our all of our work there that's excellent thank you I appreciate it Drew oh man I'm glad I'm glad we finally did this man I'm looking forward to getting you on again to uh to pick your brain, yeah, I, I I think what totally. I think what you're doing is awesome, and it's it's incredibly inspiring for me, and I think it's going to be for a lot of people that listen. And uh, I think that you know, being being the change you want to see in the world is what it's all about, man. And I think that, Absolutely. and I think that you know, it's easy, uh, it's easy to to get pissed off and 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 just you know say you know what, it's less stress for me if I don't do it. But I think. Once you get that ground base and once you once you think about it from with a clear head and try to address that problem and say, okay, how can I manage my way through through the through the BS in a sense and now how can I make this uh, get through this in a stress-free way or a lower stress way and not be so emotional about it? I think for the better. And I think that's, you know, that's something that I need to think about personally quite a bit. So Man, I, I appreciate having you on and uh, your patience and us making this happen. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Right on, right on, Drew. We'll talk soon. Talk soon, my man.